Shalom, everyone. I'm Monty Judah with Lion of Lamb Ministries. I want to welcome you to our teaching of the Torah this Sabbath. This year, we are going through and showing the theme that the Torah is for all people. And so we are now in the book of Leviticus, coming toward the end of it. If you would turn with me now to chapter 21 of Leviticus. Our portion this week is entitled Emor. Emor means speak. And the first words of that verse, it says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Speak to the priests. And the word speak, the Hebrew word emor, is a very interesting word when you break it down into the individual letter definitions. It uh, turns out that emor literally means the strength of the headwaters. And a river or a body of water that's streaming along, uh, if, whether it's a small trickle or whether it's a great one, uh, is determined by how strong are the headwaters that are supplying it. And basically speaking is like the headwaters of your spiritual life. What you speak out is going to become a spiritual river uh, that will go through the rest of the world interacting with other people. And so it has to do with the power of the tongue, the power of the spoken word. So that is a title. Uh, we have some very specific instructions in this first chapter, chapter 21, directed toward the priest, exclusively for the priest. One of the uh, general things that we teach about God's commandments is that uh, we say there are 10 general commandments. There's 613 commandments actually in the Torah. However, no person actually is in a position to have to keep all 613. All persons do have to keep that 10, but there's many, many commandments uh, that are given by God in the Torah that quite honestly don't apply to many of us because we're not in that station of life. This chapter is an excellent example of that. These are commandments strictly for the Levite priests, for those that are sons of Aaron that serve in the temple, and it specifically is instructions about whom they are to marry, not marry, can they serve in the priesthood if they have this issue or that issue, and it's a set of specific restrictions that are set forth to separate out and to only select priests that are, in, if you will, for priestly duties, pure to those tasks. Um, and it's a little bit like the, the same thing that you do on a, on a job uh, where you get a resume and we're not going to hire you for an engineering job if you don't have an engineering background and engineering training. If all you've ever done is worked at McDonald's, you're not going to get the engineering job. Well, the same thing is true. This is kind of a requirements program for the priest, what they have to do and how they marry and other things like that so that they can perform the duties as priests, as intercessors for all of Israel uh, before the Lord in the temple service. I'm not going to go through all of the details of it, but if you were to read that, you'd find there's quite, a, quite several specifics. Uh, that are given to them for them to keep. The, um, what then follows is a series of different rules, we call them sundry rules, uh, 
for the priests and and about how the sacrifices are to be handled, how the the sacrifice is to be flawless, that it can't be the blind of the flock, it can't be the lame of the flock, it it can't be something that's diseased and this well, I didn't want that one, so I'm going to go give that to the Lord. No, that's not going to go. Uh, the Lord wants the best from us, and uh, that's essentially what is happening here. If you go back to the ancient story of Cain and Abel, uh, one of the things the Scripture says that when Cain brought uh, grain from his harvesting land, uh, that he, he brought some of the grain, and that that was his that was his gift to the Lord, and Abel brought the firstlings and the fatlings of his flock. He brought the very best part of his flock to give to the Lord. Now the Lord regarded Abel's sacrifice, but he did not regard Cain's sacrifice. And if you remember, this is the reason why Cain was so upset with his brother Abel. And the Lord told him, he said, you want to be in better stud, bring a better sacrifice. Don't bring common stuff that was the leftover of the grain. Bring the very best part. Bring the first part uh, of, your, of those things. Well, and uh, that's the ancient story of Cain and Abel. Well, here is a series of laws and specifics for the priesthood to ensure that the gift that is brought before the Lord will be of the firstlings, it will be the best part uh, for it to be given. The, uh, and that should be a general principle as we talk about our theme of the Taurus for all people. In the course of your lifetime, uh, you're going to be making choices and decisions about how are you going to serve the Lord. And if you're serving the Lord is what we call some leftover time or purely from your abundance, um, and it's not, you know, the first of your increase, but it's what you have left over uh, that you didn't need, and you'll go ahead and give some of that to the Lord. Um, the Lord is not going to regard your gift because of the fact that you're not valuing it. The, the very word sacrifice, and we use that extensively in the temple service, the very thing means it is something of value. And if you give that, it's a sacrifice on your part. You've sacrificed to present that gift. And if it's purely from your abundance or it's something you didn't want, well, you're not sacrificing anything. And that's essentially what the Lord is saying here. The same thing happens um, amongst us. I don't know if you've ever had this experience, um, but I have... Uh, I have had people come up to me and give me what appears to be a gift. And I say, thank you. And then I'm with a friend, and he says, oh, where'd you get that from? And I said, oh, well, that was given to me by so-and-so, and, and it's a very nice gift. And he said, well, that's funny. He says, I gave that to him this morning. And you suddenly discover the gift that you've received. It came from a person who didn't value it. And, um, and, and it decided to just pass it on, but get the credit for giving me a gift. And you do that to the Lord, and the Lord knows about that. He is not going to be happy with you. Um, you, know, it, it, you know, the value of the gift, my friends, is determined by the giver, 
It's not determined by the person who receives it. Um, and that is particularly true with regard to the gift that God has given to us in the life of the Messiah for our sins. We're not the ones who determine the value of who the Messiah is or what he has done. God the Father is. And he, he has given us an indescribable gift. And that's the reason why it's so powerful for every one of us and all of us together uh, to be our redemption. But what we regard and what we value as the gift has no bearing on what the value of the gift really is. But if so, if you take something and you give and you don't put your heart into it, it's not really, then, then it doesn't have much value to it whatsoever. I'm always reminded of the, um, of the joke about gift giving about the little boy who goes out into the street, finds two sticks, gets a hammer and a nail, and he nails them together. Now he comes in to the house, he sees his dad, he says, hey dad, look what I made for you. And the dad looks at these sticks and he says, well, those are filthy. Where, where'd you get those? Out of the street? I mean, you know, get that, get that out of the house. And he doesn't regard the gift, okay? Now, the same gift, the same two sticks nailed together, he goes into his mother and he says, Mom, look what I made for you. All of a sudden, you know, even though it's dirty and filthy and so forth, all of a sudden the mother's down on one knee and she's hugging the kid. You know why? Because she sees into his heart that the kid's heart was giving her the gift, not because of the two sticks that were nailed together. It's because of the heart intent. Now, the father didn't see the heart intent. The mother did. But what determined the value of the gift? The giver's heart and the giver's value for it. And this is particularly true that we should learn about any gift that we give to another person and or a gift to the Lord it needs to come from the heart. If you're going to give God the gift of thanksgiving and praise, it needs to come from your heart uh, for it. And that's part of the instruction. The priests are to maintain this standard that when a person comes and brings a sacrifice, make sure it's in accordance with all of those rules and that counsel uh, for it. The, uh, it's summarized for the priest in the following words, which is in chapter 22, the last couple of verses. Verse 31 says, So you shall keep my commandments, and do them. I am the Lord, and you should not profane my holy name, but I will be sanctified by the sons of Israel. I am the Lord who sanctifies you, who brought you out of the land of Egypt to be your God. I am the Lord. He's saying that every gift, every time we come before the Lord, it's, a, it's an affirmation, it's a confirmation of what God has been doing. And of course, that um, 59 cent religious word, sanctification and sanctify, let's make sure we all understand that. When you sanctify something, you make it separate. You make it, it's not like where it came from. It has been set aside, it is separate for it. And the Lord says, when you come and bring a gift to me, make it sanctified to me because I've sanctified you. I have made you a separate people from other peoples of the world, and I'm treating you differently. Let me also add uh, one more 
definition to this because since we're in the book of Leviticus, we're learning about holiness and things that are profane. We're learning about sanctification, things that are not sanctified. So I always use this very simple example that comes from all of our homes. If you come to my house and you ask me for a drink of water, um, I will go into my cabinet, I will open the door, and you will see arrayed there on the shelves, clean glasses. There is no unclean glasses. If you want to find an unclean glass, you have to go over to either the dishwasher or something that's sitting in the sink. Now, how would you feel if you asked me for a drink of water, and instead of going to the cupboard, I just got one of those used ones? for you. How, how would you feel about it? Well, you wouldn't feel good about that at all. You know, can I have a clean one? Now, at the moment that I decide I'm going to use a clean glass from you, of the array of glasses, I pick one out, and I bring it down, and I serve it to you with the water. And at that moment, that glass has become sanctified from all the other ones in the house. At that moment, that glass is only for your use, and no one else is permitted to drink from it. Let's say I got you a drink of water, you had a little sip, you set it down, and then I walk over and I pick up your glass and I take a drink of water out of it. How would you feel about that? Well, you wouldn't feel comfortable about it. You'd be wondering, what in the world are you doing, Monty? Because at that moment, I am profaning that glass. Uh, it was sanctified for your use, but now I have pulled it back, and I've profaned it. And the instructions that God gives to us uh, here in the book of Leviticus about the holy and the profane, what is sanctified, what is holy, and what is clean, what is unclean, and so forth, it's the same definitions you use in your house for even getting a glass of water for a friend. The Lord says, in my house, I want, it, I want us to follow those rules. You know, I'll sanctify this, and we'll make that holy and clean to begin with, and that's the way it works. It's the same way that any reasonable person would be managing their own house uh, for it. So the, the, in the first two chapters, that's what we're finishing up with. The priests are being given very specific instructions with regard to how these things are to be carried out, and it was their job to ensure that things were done correctly. It was to ensure they were holy and not profane, to make sure they were clean and not unclean, make sure they were pure and appropriate for the Lord's use. And as duties, they would be the intercessor between the person bringing the gift to ensure that it was presented correctly before the Lord and that these rules were in fact followed. Now we come to chapter 23. And for those who have been coming out of the church, out of Christianity, and coming into the Messianic movement, this chapter probably is one of the most compelling in the Torah that you will begin to be a part of. Because this is the chapter that explains uh, the Moedim, the appointed times of the Lord. Throughout the year, there are specific holidays for us. And in the course of this, we call them the Levitical holidays, there's going to be Sabbath and then seven specific holidays, as we call them, uh, holy days, that are called out throughout the course of the year. And here, just recently in the springtime, 
why we observed the Passover, and that's one of the first of the cycle of the different ones. But let me take you to chapter 23, and specifically, I want to take you to, again, verse 24. And here's the word speak again, the immor word. It says, speak to the sons of Israel, saying, in the seventh month, on the first of the month, you shall have a rest, a reminder by the blowing of trumpets. Did I get too far into this book? Yes. Let me back up. That's not the first one I want to tell you about. That's the first of the, of the month. Now that we're on the page that starts chapter 23, let's start over. So chapter 23, the appointed times of the Lord, let's begin first with the verse 2. And again, that's, this is what tripped me up. The word speak is used here again. Verse 2, speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, the Lord's appointed times, which you shall proclaim as holy convocations. My appointed times are these. The first appointed time he's going to address is actually a building block for all the others. And it is the weekly Sabbath. Now, you had heard before the commandment of Sabbath, you know, God created the heavens and the earth in six days, and he rested on the seventh. Well, this is certainly part of it. But then he said to Israel, he said, the keeping of the Sabbath is going to be a sign between me and you with regard to our relationship. And this is part of the reason why we say that, why we say it's a sign between us and Israel, because between uh, the Lord and Israel, I should say, it's because Sabbath, what you learn how to do on Sabbath, it's part of future uh, holidays. It's part of the future appointed times. So you learn how to keep a Sabbath, and that's what enables you to learn how to keep the other feasts of the Lord. And verse 4, it says, These are the appointed times, holy convocations, which you shall proclaim at the times appointed for them, and he starts off, and in the first month, on the 14th day of the month, at twilight is the Lord's Passover. So that means that in the springtime, in the month of Nisan, sometimes called the month of Aviv, Aviv means spring, that you're going to count over to the 14th day. And at the twilight of the 14th day, meaning at the very beginning of the 14th day, and that would be at sundown and leading into the evening, that at the evening of the 14th day, you're going to observe the Passover. And this is a reminder of what transpired back in Egypt. Uh, our ancestors were told to take a yearling lamb, slay the lamb, put the blood over the doorposts, and to eat the lamb with bitter herbs and matzah unleavened bread uh, on that evening. Let me just say what makes Passover rather interesting. It is an observance that is done at night. There's not a big observance thing called upon for the daytime. Now, in the temple that was in Jerusalem, there was a daytime observance of the Passover. There was a specific a set of things that were set up by the priesthood to recognize the Passover and to have those. But the evening, the actual afternoon before and that evening is when the Passover was eaten. 
when uh, we read about how that Yeshua was getting ready for the, that Passover, what some people call the Last Supper, he dispatched Peter and John to go into Jerusalem and to prepare the Passover. And that meant they had the duties of getting a yearling lamb and going down to the temple. And that afternoon at approximately 3 o'clock, which is the same time as the evening sacrifice, is put on the altar. And they would have the lamb slain. The blood of that lamb was then poured out at the base of the altar, not put on the altar, but poured out at the base of the altar. And they then took that lamb back and basically put it on the spit to start cooking it with fire. And then later on in the upper room, the disciples are there with the Lord and they're eating this same lamb that earlier in the afternoon had been taken to the temple by Peter and John. In addition to that, they were also had to prepare bitter herbs, and they had to prepare the unleavened bread uh, that was associated with the bread of haste, and they would have this Passover Seder meal. And that's part of the instruction from Exodus chapter 12, where Moses was told that this was to be a memorial uh, observance every year by the children of Israel that they were to remember what the Lord did, bringing the children of Israel out of Egypt and the redemption of the firstborn. It wasn't that Israel was saved at the Passover, but the firstborn were redeemed at that point. Salvation actually came when they left Egypt, crossed the Red Sea. But redemption leads to salvation, and it's a crucial part of it. You can, it's very difficult to separate the two concepts because they're essentially speaking to the same thing the same end result uh, for it. So when we come to observe the Passover, we're bringing into the remembrance of all of those things. And traditionally, the way we observe the Passover is on the evening, the 14th, and there's all this preparation that was done on the 13th, getting us to that point, why we eat of the Passover Seder meal. And most of us use what's called a Haggadah, the order of the service, a Seder means order, and we go through the different cups and the reminders, and we tell, teach our children the story and so forth. There are four major cups to the Passover, and for those of you who just recently had the Passover, this is just a quick review. Cup of sanctification. Well, we know what sanctified means. It means we separate out this meal from all other meals for the year, make it separate, special. Then we have the cup of instruction. We teach our children about what happened at the Passover, how the Lord delivered us with great judgments uh, from the Egyptians. Then we have our meal, and then we have the cup of redemption, where we're specifically talking about the blood of the, uh, of the lamb covered us, and so the firstborn were delivered. And then we have the cup of praise, you know, rejoicing in the fact that the Lord has done this for us. There is one more cup in the traditional Seder, and it's called the cup of Elijah. That is part of the future implication of the Passover. You see, it turns out that the Passover not only is telling us of things of the past, it's telling us of things of the future. And every generation is to keep the Passover, and we're to teach our sons this, so that as it moves forward in time, there will come a moment when 
that future generation, Passover will be the signal to them of what is called the greater exodus. Now, there was an exodus out of Egypt. That was with our ancestors. Traveled through the great and terrible wilderness, and they went to the promised land. In this future one, we're going to be coming out of all the nations of the world. We're going to be going through the great and terrible tribulation, and then making our way into the promised land, the messianic kingdom. Uh, that pattern is there, and it's part of the prophetic instruction. Now, I mentioned the cup of Elijah as being the clue as to when it's going to happen. <clears throat> There's a game played with the family, with the children at every Passover. There comes a point before the Passover is completed in which the father will dispatch the children to the door to see if Elijah is at the door and actually instruct the children, it's kind of fun, to shout out into the neighborhood in case Elijah is somewhere in the neighborhood and can't find a house, that he can come to the right house. And we invite Elijah to come and enjoy the Passover with us. Because here's the understanding. The year that we see Elijah is on the earth and is with us in that day, then that is the Passover of the greater Exodus. We will eat that Passover. We will gather ourselves up, take the bread of haste, and we leave. We go on the greater Exodus. And the key is, is Elijah in the world that day? So we set the cup for Elijah for that purpose. There's a lot of Jews uh, and a lot of folks been keeping Passover years don't quite know about that because they've only learned about the past of the Passover. They haven't learned about the future of it. You have to learn about these prophetic implications of the feast because the Messiah uses them dramatically to reveal and to manifest himself. Now, let me just quickly go through what in Leviticus 23 you're going to hear about the seven different appointed times. I've mentioned Passover to you. Well, there's another one in there, and it's called the Feast of Unleavened Bread. On the day after Passover, on the 15th of Nisan, not the 14th, but on the 15th of Nisan, for seven days we eat unleavened bread. On the 15th day and on the 21st day, they are declared to be high Sabbaths. So not only it's a Sabbath that falls, it's like a weekly Sabbath, but even more special. And then after we've done the Passover on the 14th and the Feast of Unleavened beginning the 15th through the 21st, then after the weekly Sabbath, that occurs sometime during the Feast of Unleavened Bread on the day after that weekly Sabbath is called the Feast of First Fruits. Um, and the ceremony that used to be in the temple went something like this. They would bring in barley sheaves, and barley was the first grain that would come in the harvest cycle. And, they would be, and sometimes these were green barley sheaves. They would bring them in, they would wave them before the Lord for the ceremony of the Feast of First Fruits, and they would thank God for the resurrection of life. You see, the seeds had died from the year previous. 
They had been buried, put in the ground. They had been watered with the waters of salvation, water that causes them to grow. And they had sprung up in newness of life. And so it's a picture of a resurrection, dead to coming alive and being very fruitful and producing even more seed. So they would thank God for the resurrection of life. Now, back in the days that Yeshua came to be with the disciples, he kept saying when people would ask him about whether or not he's the Messiah um, and what he's going to do and so forth, he kept saying, it's not my time yet. It's not my time. Well, finally, when we came to this Passover, now he says, now it's my time. And because he was there to fulfill a prophetic understanding of the, about the Passover, because that blood of the Lamb is going to become the blood of the Lamb of God, the promised Lamb that Abraham promised to us, his descendants. And that Lamb of God and the blood, the sacrifice being done by it, is what would take away the sins of the world. John the Baptist, when he introduced Yeshua, he said, Behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. And at that point, we had a Levite priest designate him as the Lamb of God. And so when it came time for the Passover, he submits himself to the brethren and to the authorities, the temple council. They arrest him, and on Passover day of that Passover that year, he was slain. He was crucified. Um, and essentially, he turned the traditional elements of the memorial dinner into where the bread is spoken of him being broken for us, that's his body, and the cup of redemption being the cup of the new covenant in his blood. And so it symbolizes all of that coming together. Now, you got to go back and you got to ask yourself, now, how in the world did they come up with this memorial meal? How did they come up with a tradition? Some of it is attributed to Ezekiel the prophet. When the children of Israel were uh, taken by the Babylonians, and they no longer were in Jerusalem, and they could no longer do the ceremonial thing that they used to do there, they cried out because of captivity. They didn't have the temple. It was Ezekiel who began to teach the people that if you'll take a cup of wine on the Passover, that it represents the Passover lamb, the blood of the Passover lamb. So when Yeshua said, take this cup, I'm, you know, it's my blood, and he's the lamb of God, that wasn't a completely foreign thought. They had already been thinking of that tradition and the symbolism of it. They were already will, more than willing to accept that because that had become part of the instruction, part of the understanding of how to observe the Passover. So here we have a case of this ancient appointed time, and it's being used by the Messiah to illustrate and reveal him. The, uh, and it's part of the prophetic fulfillment that Yeshua came and fulfilled certain key prophecies as the Messiah. Passover is one of the major prophecies. In fact, the prophecies that he fulfilled during the Passover and leading to his crucifixion, his death on Passover day. The vast majority of prophecies about the Messiah were fulfilled by Yeshua of Nazareth on that day. If all you ever heard was the testimony of Yeshua on that last Passover day, you have more than sufficient evidence to believe that he was 
the Lamb of God. He was the Messiah who had come to do the work of redemption. Now, when he came out of the grave, the Scripture is emphatic telling us that it was the first day after the Sabbath, which means, according to Leviticus 23, he rose on the Feast of First Fruits. And the Feast of First Fruits, which is illustrating the resurrection, here he's coming out of the grave, and he's now the resurrected Messiah, proving that he has eternal life, and there will be a great increase that will follow, just like that little kernel of grain went into the earth, it, it uh, germinated, it came, sprouted up, it grew a plant, and produced you know, much grain. Well, in the same picture that Yeshua is the first fruit of the first fruit brethren, and that's the reason why he's called the first fruits of the kingdom, just as the holiday uh, was designated for it as well. Now, there's something rather interesting in this instruction. It, it gets a little complicated for a lot of folks, and, and it has to do with that once you observe the Feast of First Fruits, you're now going to do a very special count. You see, that Sabbath, that the first fruits was on the first day after that Sabbath, from the first uh, day of first fruits, you're now going to count from that point seven Sabbaths. You're going to count seven weeks that you're going to do. On the seventh Sabbath, it'll be the 49th day, then the scripture goes into saying that on the 50th day or on the morrow after the seventh Sabbath, this is, and we call this the counting of the Omer, uh, then we're going to have the Feast of Weeks. We have seven weeks, seven weekly Sabbaths. On the morrow after the seventh, we're going to have the Feast of Weeks. This is called, also in the Scripture, the Day of Proclamation. We believe that this date uh, that, that Moses told us to have is the date in which the God gave the Ten Commandments and the Torah to the children of Israel. This is the day God spoke and proclaimed uh, the Torah to us. Now, that's what happened historically, but let's also, in the days of Yeshua, what happened? Well, in the days of Yeshua, he had died, and he was resurrected, and the disciples were specifically told to go to Jerusalem and wait there, and they did, and they waited for the Feast of Weeks, and suddenly that's when the gift of the Holy Spirit was given to them, and what did they do? They go out by the power of the Holy Spirit, and they begin to proclaim the good news of the resurrected Messiah and redemption from sins with all of the people. They, a lot of people say, well, that's the day the church began. I, I disagree with that language uh, quite a bit. However, there was a significant change, and just like the significant change that took place with the children of Israel coming out of Egypt and they go to the mountain and they get the Torah, this was a significant change for them. It's a significant change for us on that date. So I've taken you through Passover, Feast of Unleavened Bread, Feast of First Fruits, and then we've counted the 50 days to the Feast of Weeks, Shavuot, as we say in the Hebrew. Then there is a period of what they call the two long dry months. 
There's no holiday for a while. We don't do anything particularly specific to it and whatsoever. But then we approach the month of Tishri, which is the seventh month following Nisan. And we're specifically instructed that on the very first day of that month should be called the Feast of Trumpets or Yom Teruah, the day of the trumpet, the day of trumpets. And then we count from there 10 more days. Those days from trumpets to that that 10th day are called the days of awe, the days of fear, because on the 10th day we have Yom Kippur, the day of atonement. And then five days after that, we have the Feast of Tabernacles that begins on the 15th of Tishri and extends for eight days, seven days with this special day at the end, and that's the Feast of Tabernacles, sometimes called uh, the Feast of Booths, um, and in the Hebrew it's called uh, Sukkot, which means booths or huts or tents. The um, As the Messiah came that, that one year that he came with us and he fulfilled all the spring feasts, you know, he offered himself up as a sacrifice, he was resurrected, and uh, the giving of the Holy Spirit, you know, that, that, that got things going in that regard. Uh, there is a future generation at the end of the ages, at the, uh, toward the last day, in which that the Feast of Trumpets, Yom Kippur, and uh, Sukkot are going to then be fulfilled. So the holidays are actually not only commemorating things of the past, but they're telling us of things of the future. In the case of trumpets, uh, we've been told by the Lord that one of the core and central elements of the future resurrection and rapture, as some people like to say, is the sounding of a great trumpet. And uh, Paul talked about this, this moment when those who are dead in the Messiah are suddenly raised and those who are alive at the time are caught up with him, uh, and that's the resurrection and the rapture together, and it, that it's done at the sound of a great trumpet. And so the whole idea of the Feast of Trumpets is commemorating and speaking to a future time when God's people will be raised up and will be given our immortal bodies and we'll be with the Lord. Now, the nature of that event is that we will raise up into the clouds. We don't go to heaven. We go up into the clouds uh, over the earth because we're only there temporarily before we come right back down to the earth. What happens while we're up in the clouds? Well, 10 days later is Yom Kippur, and the prophets all tell us that Yom Kippur symbolizes the day of the Lord. This is the day that God judges the whole earth by fire. He's a consuming fire. We can't be on the surface of the earth when the wrath of God is poured out. The wrath of God is not appointed to us. So we have to be resurrected and raised off the earth, but we don't leave. We're just put in a safe place. We float above the judgment, if you will. And, and then once the judgment is completed, then we come down and we rest on a mountain called Jerusalem. And the Messiah comes back and his toe touches down on the Mount of Olives. He comes across into the city of Jerusalem, comes across into the Temple Mount area, and that's what's happening on the 15th of Tishri. And we have a great celebration, the Feast of Tabernacles with the Lord. The Lord now dwells uh, 
with us. Uh, other places in the scripture describe all these elements that I'm, I'm telling you about. In fact, there are a host of prophets that hint at all of these things and speak to them as future things about why we observe these feasts and what they have to do with and what the future implications are for it. So the spring feasts speak of the Messiah's first coming. The fall feasts speak of the Messiah's second coming. You know, and when it comes to, uh, is the Torah really for all people? This is one of the things that is kind of striking to me. Uh, if you ask the average Christian, uh, average believer, are, do you believe in the second coming? They're going to say yes. And if you ask, well, what do you expect? Oh, I'm expecting the rapture. I'm expecting it to come back. And you're all excited about it. Yes, I'm very excited about the rapture. I'm very excited about the Lord coming back. I'm looking forward to it. I said, well, if that be so, then why don't you keep these fall feasts, which is teaching and illustrating all of that, so that you'll understand it even better? Why aren't you preparing for the celebration that will be in the kingdom when he returns? Why aren't you understanding the day of the Lord and God's judgment that will be upon the earth? Why aren't you reviewing again the importance of the blowing of that trumpet and you being raised from the grave and or being caught up together with all the other believers. Why aren't you focusing on that? No, no, they don't want to focus on that. And the reason they don't is because they have no idea that that's what this is talking about. Here we are in the Torah, and the baseline prophecies for the Messiah's two comings, his coming to do the work of redemption, his coming to do the work of restoration is laid out in this one chapter of Leviticus. Seems to me this is a pretty important chapter in the Bible for us. It lays the whole pattern out. It tells us what's the big picture that's taking place here with the Lord and what the intent is for it. Um, a lot of messianics, when they first come into the movement, uh, this is one of the first things that they get introduced to. Uh, just like our ancestors, when they came out of um, Egypt, they get introduced to Sabbath first. Then they start eating something different. You know, they're not eating what they used to eat before. And they start eating manna. And then the next thing you know is they start observing and keeping the feast, which is part of the instruction of the Torah. And in fact, it was in the first year after they came out of Egypt that they built the tabernacle on one Nisan. And on the 14th, they, were, they, they understood some of the elements of the Passover, but they didn't keep it. No, wait a minute, excuse me. They did keep it, but the one item they didn't do is they weren't circumcising their sons. And by the way, there is a requirement to circumcise your son before you can eat the Passover. When they got into the land, the first observance they had in the land was to eat the Passover, but this time they circumcised their sons upon entering the land. So that was part of the mechanism of how to implement these things. Now, Israel historically fell away from keeping the appointed times of the Lord. And it was uh, other kings such as King Hezekiah, who reinstituted the appointed times of the Lord. 
uh, so that they would begin to observe them again. And the Lord honored that and extended his life some 15 years. In the days of Yeshua, they were keeping these, but they had a problem. The northern kingdom at this point was not permitting people to come to Jerusalem. They were instead doing it at their own thing. So the lambs weren't being brought down to Jerusalem. They were doing them up in other places, Bethel and Dan. And so it w wasn't right. So in all the cases of the history of Israel, they'd never really been keeping this fully and properly. But in these days here amongst us, in this generation here, as we're turning back to Moses and his instruction, even though we don't have the temple and even though we're not in Jerusalem, we have a heart to want to keep these. And part of it has to do with the Lord is again redrawing us together because when he comes back, we will observe these in the, in the kingdom. And so in effect, where we're at right now today, I'm here in Oklahoma, we're on a training program. Uh, we're getting our hearts right to obey these appointed times. So when the Lord does return, we're ready to observe these things and ready to do these things with the Lord. We've already been, if you will, trained to a certain extent to be able to do it. All we need is temple, priesthood, the Messiah, and be in Jerusalem. And we'll get that when the Lord returns. So it's very important for us at this point to learn about these appointed times and make them a part of our walk of faith as Messianic believers. Now, the last, um, chapter 24 is the last portion that we have here, and there's a couple of interesting things I just want to mention here very briefly uh, that comes to it. We're, we're back to discussing things that the priests are to do in the temple and back to discussing about the, the bread that they would bring and the trimming of the lamps and, and so forth. The show bread is explained. And they go into a, uh, a series of other instructions about the standards. Now, this is the one uh, that I want to take you, the verse I want to take you to. Chapter 24, verse 22, it says, there shall be one standard for you. It shall be for the stranger as well as the native, for I am the Lord your God. You need to underline that verse. That's the theme of my teaching this year, the Torah. The Torah is for all people. There is the Lord saying the same thing. There's one standard for the definition of appropriate behavior and worship of God whether you are a native-born or whether you are a stranger, an alien, or so forth. If you're a Gentile and you're saying, well, I don't have to follow this Jewish stuff, I have news for you. You have to follow the same standard that I follow, and I have to follow the same standard that you follow. There is not one set of rules for the Jews in the world and another set of rules for Gentile believers in the Jewish Messiah. We have the same set of rules. The same standard is for us all. There's only one law of God. It is for all people of God who believe in the God of Israel. Uh, if you hear a teaching about, well, God set up the Noachide laws for the Gentiles, it is an effort on the part of Judaism to limit you and keep you from learning the Torah. 
You are to learn the Torah every bit as much as a Jewish believer. By the way, I encourage you, if you're coming from a Gentile background, to do that. Why? Because if I can get you to obey his commandments and understand what the Torah is teaching, you will help, are you ready for this? Provoke my Jewish brethren to jealousy. See, my Jewish brethren, they know they're supposed to keep it, and they don't do a very good job of keeping it, and they know it. But if you come along, not being born Jewish, and you're observing and you're keeping the commandments of God, and it's in sharp contrast with them not keeping the commandments, it provokes them to jealousy. Literally, they say these words, well, these commandments belong to me. I should be doing them even better than that person. And by the way, that is a very good testimony to present to others. I can assure you that if other people in your life observe you as obeying the Lord, not being legalistic, don't misunderstand me here one bit. Legalism is when you follow the commandments of men, but when you follow the commandments of God, it's called obedience. And when they see your testimony of obedience, you, you just really don't quite understand what that does to another person who observes it. Their respect of you just skyrockets. Their trust of you goes up. They, they will trust you implicitly because you have this testimony of obeying the Lord. They, their regard for you, they will value you. In fact, they'll have a tendency to value you more than they even value themselves. And by the way, that's, that's kind of a good position to be in when it comes to getting along with people. Uh, most people don't feel like people value them very well. You want to be valued well? Obey the Lord. People will naturally value you uh, in, a, in a great way. Furthermore, it enables you, then, once you're keeping the commandments, to simply be more confident in your walk before God personally and to be more confident in your testimony before other people. If you're going in as a hypocrite saying one thing and, but doing something else, they'll discredit your testimony like that. But if you go in keeping the commandments and they see you keeping the commandments, they don't challenge you. Now they have to deal with what you're saying by way of testimony and the good things you would say of the Lord, the encouragement that you might offer to them uh, for it. Those are central and key to how our faith works, how it expands out into the community, uh, how others can gain from your spiritual walk in life. Thus, you're increasing the kingdom. And it's so simple. All you have to do is have a clear testimony of obeying the Lord. And they'll have that testimony if they find you keeping his commandments. Now, let's be honest. All of us right now, if you put the test to me, Monty, are you really keeping the commandments uh, as well as you could be? No, I'm not. Uh, are you keeping them according to exactly what the Lord has said? I'm hoping for that. I'm still learning, though. Um, and, but that doesn't count when it comes to your testimony. They see the intent of your heart. They see what you're trying to do. And they will credit you with obeying the Lord when they see your heart intent. By the way, our Heavenly Father does the same thing. 
He is a covering for us for all of our mistakes and our ignorance. But he sees the heart and the intent of it, to, the heart and intent to obey. <clears throat> One of the best ways for a messianic believer to get serious about his messianic faith is commit yourself to keep every one of these appointed times in that particular year. In so doing, you will transform your walk you know, before the Lord. So that's the reason why this particular Torah portion is so meaningful to me as the, as the portion called Emor, or speak. It's the strength of the headwaters determines what the river does. So if I can get me, my heart, my mind, and I can get me to follow these particular commandments, that river that flows from me and continues on in front of other people will become very great as a river because it has strong headwaters that are supporting it <clears throat> based on simply the keeping of Sabbath and his appointed times. <clears throat> shalom, everyone. Shabbat shalom.